Welcome to How to Reach the West Again, a podcast that aims to inspire and empower a fresh missionary encounter with Western culture. I'm your host, Brandon O'Brien. In this season of the podcast, we're focused on cities. What are they? What does the Bible say about them? How do we plant churches there? What does it mean to really love our cities? And so today, Tim Keller looks closely at what the Bible has to say about cities. He finds that the Bible offers a balanced view of cities, one that's neither unduly pessimistic nor naively optimistic. He argues that because cities play such an important role in human culture making, they are a critical context for God's mission to make all things new. Next, we're joined by Andrew Cate from Sydney, Australia, who suggests a missiological approach to reaching cities in a way that's culturally resonant with complex and diverse populations. But first, Tim Keller. Part of the DNA of City to City has always been what we call city vision. And city vision is what it sounds like. It's looking at the city through the lens of the Bible, as it were, through the spectacles of the Bible. And getting a vision for not only reaching cities, loving and serving and reaching cities, but even a vision of what cities are. So the Bible tells us a great deal about uh, what cities are and how we should regard them, and then also how to minister to people in them. And the fact of the matter is that on different continents, cities are seen differently. So there are some continents and some countries and some regions in which uh, the, the average person sees cities in a very positive way. They say, well, if you can live in a city, then you're important, then you're somebody. Um, there's also, at the other end of the spectrum, there's North America, where, um, where Redeemer, the original Redeemer Church, started. And in North America, there's very much an anti-urban bias, especially amongst evangelicals. And therefore, when Redeemer got started, um, I, as the pastor, had to deal with the negative attitudes that people had toward the city. Uh, the reality is that the Bible is almost perfectly balanced, as we're going to show you in just a second. That the Bible is very realistic about the, what's wrong with the city and the flaws of it and the dangers of it, but also uh, sees the positive, sees the blessing, uh, sees the goodness that the city can do and bring to people. And therefore, no matter where you are in the world, uh, the biblical vision of the city Uh, you can use it on your people. Because if people have too naively positive a view of the city, you can show them what the Bible says about the dangers, spiritual dangers of it. If, if like myself, you're in a part, if you're in North America where so many Christians have such negative views of the city, then you can use the parts of the Bible that talk about uh, its importance and and the positive things that can happen there. So the Bible has something for all of us. Uh, We have to contextualize it, as it were. That is, we have to use it in the particular way that our particular communities need. But the first thing we do is we, we look at what the, uh, what the Bible says about the city diachronically. Now, to read the Bible diachronically is to read it along the storyline of the Bible from beginning to end. That's what diachronic means. It means, it means to read from Genesis to Revelation. And when you read the Bible like that about cities, when you say, well, what is... What does Genesis and Exodus say about cities? You know, what does Psalms and Isaiah say about cities? What does the gospel say about cities? What does Revelation say about cities? That's what we're doing. When you do that, you'll see 
that in the beginning, cities are actually seen in a fairly negative light. By the middle of the Bible, they're seen in a more positive light. And by the end of the Bible, they're seen in a most positive light. And that's pretty interesting. <clears throat> so let me explain what I mean. In the very beginning, uh, the first city is built by Cain. Okay, that's not a great, <laughs> that's not a great recommendation. And, um, and you see even in Genesis 4 that the first uh, civilization starts coming out of cities where they develop tools and agriculture and all sorts of other kinds, and they develop art and music. But you can also see there's a violence to it because the city of Cain, uh, the, the civilization leads to violence. When you get to the Tower of Babel, that was a city being built. That was a skyscraper. And of course, we know that that was uh, done to make a name for ourselves. That's what they did. Then you have the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, Abraham and Lot, they divided, and Lot went into the city, and, day, and Abraham stayed out of the city, and it was better for Abraham to stay out of those cities. And so, uh, and even when you get to Exodus, you see that the uh, Israelites are enslaved in order to build cities. So cities are seen in a very negative way. Um, they're places where human beings come together to glorify themselves, to make a name for themselves, to oppress where the rich and the powerful oppress those who are not. Uh, but then when you get <clears throat> to when Israel is brought back to the promised land, suddenly cities in the Bible take on a different, it might say there's a different aspect. For example, uh, the, God did not want Israel to be a completely rural society. They, he demanded that they build what he called cities of refuge, six cities where if somebody was, uh, uh, you know, if someone accidentally killed somebody else, they could run to that city where they could get protected. And the whole idea behind that is this, that it's in cities where jurisprudence begins, where, where civilization begins, because people are living together. They have to develop ways of people living closely compacted together uh, can live. And therefore, out in the countryside, if somebody accidentally kills somebody else, well, that family might just come and just kill that other family. But if you go to the city, that's where they have judges and they have, they have lawyers and they have a way of, of dealing with uh, complaints because you can't live in a city without a way of adjudicating complaints. That's why God says, I want you to build cities because cities build culture and cities build jurisprudence and cities develop, develop human culture. And then, of course, God says, I want Jerusalem to be uh, an urban society that's the joy of the whole earth. So, and even when the Jews go into exile, when they get to Babylon, they're told to pray for the peace of the city and to do everything they can while they're there for its prosperity. And so in the middle part of the, of the Bible, we don't see uh, this negativity toward the, the city you see in the early part. It doesn't mean that the city isn't still a bad place. It, it's, it's, it's no contradiction. But at the same time, it's showing that there are other aspects of the city that maybe we didn't see just in the book of Genesis and Exodus. And finally, we get to the New Testament, and you'll see not only Jesus ministering in a city, he ministered in the Decapolis, which was a, 10 cities on the northern part of, of uh, just outside, actually, of uh, Judea. He ministered in a place where there were a lot of, it was very uh, urban. It was Decapolis means 10 cities. And he ministers there a lot. But Paul, in particular, we see in the book of Acts, would target cities. He would plant a church in the biggest city in an area like Philippi in order to reach Macedonia. He'd plant churches in Philippi, and then he would leave the region because he knew if you change the city, 
you change the region because the city is the center of the region. And when you get to Revelation, you eventually see that in the end, when God creates a new heavens and new earth, a culture that is perfectly God-glorifying and a perfect culture for human flourishing, you know what you have? You have a city, the New Jerusalem. Now, synchronic is a word that means topically. What, is the, what does the Bible actually tell you about cities? And the answer is these things. First of all, cities are good. That is, they're places where, um, they're places of refuge and security. Why do you think immigrants go into cities? If an immigrant is coming to a new country, they go to cities because there's more people like them there that, that speak their language. There's newspapers in their language. There's restaurants and there's, there's uh, civic associations. And um, cities are places of refuge for people who don't have as much uh, cultural cachet in a particular country. Uh, secondly, cities are good because they are places where cultures developed. Uh, Gerhardus Voss explains why cities are both good and bad. And he says at one place, cities, while the accumulator of the energy of culture, cities are also an accumulator of the potencies of evil. Now the idea of a city as an accumulator, it's another way of saying the cities are like a magnifying glass. What a magnifying glass does is it can concentrate the beams of the sun you know, onto a piece of paper and it goes you know, into flame. In the same way, cities are not actually good or evil. Cities are magnifications of human nature, which means cities are, you, in the cities you see humanity at its best, and you also see humanity at its very worst. Because cities are the accumulator of human nature. They're the magnifiers of human nature. And therefore, cities are incredibly good uh, you can see the best almost of everything that human beings can, can produce in cities. And they're also the very worst. There can be tremendous poverty, tremendous corruption, tremendous racism, tremendous crime. And so instead of blaming cities <laughs> for the bad or romanticizing cities for the good, we need to see what we actually have in cities as cities bringing out what's in the human heart. And that's the reason why we can say cities are good, Cities are bad, but most of all, cities are important. They're important for the culture. That is to say, generally speaking, the changes um, that happen to human culture happen in cities and they spread out to the rest of culture. So human cities tend to drive culture and therefore they are important to you know, human society, but they're also crucial for um, ministry. Because if you reach a city, then you can reach the society. If you can, if you, uh, like in the small town, you might reach the lawyers, one or two lawyers. But it's in the city that you reach the legal profession because that's where the law schools are. That's where the guilds are. See? Uh, and therefore, by going into the city, even though city ministry is much more complicated and much more difficult and much more expensive and, uh, like I said, much more complex than other kinds of ministry, it's really, really important. And the Bible calls not all Christians to go to cities, but he does call, the Bible does call uh, some Christians to go to cities and all Christians to care about cities. So let me just end like this. At the end of the book of Jonah, God is 
uh, he's rebuking Jonah because Jonah went to Nineveh only out of, uh, you know, he was forced to go to Nineveh. He didn't want to go to this great city filled with pagans. He didn't want to be there. And when he finally went, he preached, and some of them, a lot of them repented, and then God didn't destroy the city, and he got Jonah really angry. Jonah didn't even want to go and preach to Nineveh. But when it turns out that, you know, he thought, well, maybe if I preach to Nineveh and they turn away, God will destroy them. But when God decides not to destroy them, he gets very angry. At the very end, God is saying, you care about the plant that I grew up around your head. Why in the world aren't you concerned about the city with 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left? At the very end, he says, I am concerned. He says, should I not be concerned about this city? That's the last thing he says in the book of Jonah. He says to Jonah, shouldn't I be concerned? Shouldn't I have compassion on the city? Look at all those people. Here's the point. Not every Christian is called to go into the city, but city to city is filled with people who feel called to live in the city and minister to the city. And you know what God is saying there at the end of the book of Jonah? He's saying, I'm already there. I'm already concerned. I was concerned about the city before you were. I was having compassion on the city before you were. I was already working in the city before you were. And now that you're here, I just want you to know I've gone before you and paved your way. Our guest today is Andrew Cate. So my name is Andrew Cate. I'm the CEO of City City Australia, um, which is part of City City Asia Pacific, which is part of City City Global, which is supported by Redeemer City City, and which has a long and um, somewhat checkered connection with City City because we're a bit rogue at times. In episode one, Tim Keller explained that one critical feature of successful urban ministry is contextual churches, churches whose programming and priorities, whose gospel preaching and application are all adapted specifically for the unique challenges and circumstances of city life. But as anyone who lives in a city will know, not every neighborhood or sub-city or locality in the city is the same. It's not enough to contextualize for, quote, the city. We have to rethink ministry so that it connects with the particular people on our particular block. That means urban ministry has to be as diverse and varied as the populations that make up our great cities. Andrew helps us think about what that might look like. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us. We're excited to have you on to talk about your experience in Sydney. Great to be here. America has a fairly long almost since its origin, urban-rural divide. Um, And I'm wondering if Australia has something similar uh, or if, as a society, Australia tends to demonize urban places, romanticize them, or kind of maybe at a high level, what's the sort of national um, relationship to Australia's cities? Well, so there's a couple of different factors in that that actually are in tension with each other. Australia was began, uh, began as a penal colony, uh, in New South Wales and then in Victoria. And so it began as what we would now call urban centres um, and developed uh, in that way, uh, in such a way actually that there's a lot of competition and and feeling at one level between those different urban centres. And Australia is one of the most urbanised countries in the world. In terms of population yeah, distribution? Th- yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's something like 80% of the, or 90% of the population lives within 50 kilometres of the coast, for example. So the cities are all clustered around the coast. We've got a great big desert in the middle. Um, so that's on the one hand. On the other hand, the the wealth of Australia, and at one point, uh, I think Melbourne was the 
wealthiest city in the world during the gold rush in the 1850s. And so um, uh, the wealth of Australia has been built, what we used to describe as on the sheep's back. Uh, so wool and wheat and more recently um, minerals and um, uh, coal and gas mm. and so on. So um, mining uh, have led to an enormous um, wealth creation in Australia. And all of that, of course, is not urban. That's all not just even regional but remote. And so there's there's a lot of um, mythology in Australia around rural and remote areas and um, uh, the sort of the, the, the rugged Australian, not quite the same uh, rugged individualist uh, of, of the um, the pioneer uh, American, but the, the 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 Australian who just toughs it out uh, and and battles against the odds and beats the elements and so on. And so there's a, it's a, it's quite an interesting dynamic actually the the whole rural and regional vis-a-vis city thing, when we're both the, I think one of the most urbanised countries in the world and have been for years, but at the same time much of the wealth of Australia has been built on um, mining and and um, uh, primary industry. So tell me about Sydney in that landscape of as you kind of described as kind of competing cities. What's the uh, what's the sort of city identity or yeah. uh, or personality? Well, uh, classic um, firstborn is is the and really literally firstborn, which means that Sydney never really talks about anywhere else because we don't care. One of our uh, great playwrights, Dave Williamson, described Sydney as the Emerald City, and partly because we have this harbour which is, you know, in an unbiased way, I'm happy to say the greatest harbour in the world <laughs> and uh, is absolutely beautiful. The, the beaches and the foreshores all along the harbour are just quite ridiculously stunning. Um, and so it glistens emerald. But it's like that too. It's, it's a, a little bit superficial. Uh, it's, um, it's young money, not old money. The old money's in Melbourne. Okay. To whatever degree Australia gets entrepreneurial, which is not very, uh, there's a lot of that in Sydney. It's flashy, it's superficial, it's thin. The, the other thing to say is that, um, uh, you know, we're here in London uh, and it is one of the great cities of the world along with New York and, and Paris and so on. Um, and the key, I think, to those cities is that they have mixed um, land use in the city, both residential plus retail plus commercial, all mixed in together. There is no Australian city that really has pulled that off yet. And so our central business district, the commercial centre, just really still empties out very much at night. If you walk around at night, there's just hardly any people who live in the area. And so it's a bit of a donut arrangement. There's Sydney is sort of 50 kilometres on a semicircle north, west and south. East, of course, is the ocean. And But there's a donut in the, right in the centre, which is the, the, the business district. Uh, so people commute in do their work, and then commute home. Yeah. But in terms of the actual life of the city itself, and that, what, what you call centre city, uh, that's not quite the same as, as these great cities like uh, Paris and uh, New York and London. You've uh, described that the city of Sydney doesn't really function as a whole unit, mm. but that it functions more as kind of a patchwork mm. of a number of different subsidies. Mm. Um, can you just unpack that? Tell us what you mean by that. So um, I guess like many large urban areas, and Sydney's not huge, but it's not tiny, the 5 million. Um, that's just too many people, really, to all be homogenous. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is that um, different, uh, you might call um, demographic, or go slightly deeper than that, ethnographic, mm-hmm. 
or what we'll maybe talk about later on, slightly deeper than that, a spiritually um, divergent um, communities form with different sets of values, different hopes and aspirations and desires and fears and um, personal identity and so on. And that our city in, in Sydney, uh, and we've, we've done this in Melbourne and, and in other, other Australian cities as well, really function as these clusters of what we've called subsidies. And it can be quite quite close. It can be one one railway line or one major highway that separates from one side to the other. Yeah. And and it, really everything changes. Ethnic makeup changes. Uh, in the um, we had a recent vote on same sex marriage as a plebiscite, okay. and the area that had the highest yes vote bordered the area that had the highest no vote so that you could you could actually throw a tennis ball from one to the other and yet that so they function just yeah. quite separately as communities quite different values quite different aspirations quite different um, sensibilities um, and so what this just means is that um, uh, the from a missiological point of view the the approach that needs to be taken in each of these areas will just need to be at least a little bit different. If it's if it's the same all over, um, then um, you'll you'll be missing people. And, and um, the the um, people who do marketing know this. Uh, and so newspapers, for example, are quite different uh, in different sections of the city. Each of these different areas functions. So there's the the northern beaches area, and you can imagine these are northern beaches. They're extremely laid back. It's very relaxed. It's quite a lot. You know, quite wealthy, so you, it's easy to be laid back when you're wealthy. But uh, very chilled. It's surf in the morning and surf in the evening, mm-hmm. and and yet if you go out to the uh, southwestern suburbs, uh, Sydney's built on a, on a basin that just gets hotter and hotter and bakes further and further away from the the water that you go. Mm, sure. And so prices come down. So socioeconomically, people with lower incomes move out further uh, west. They don't. They're not talking about that sort of leisure lifestyle. It's a, it's a different lifestyle. It's a different set of, as I say, sensibilities um, in, in those areas. And mission in that area just will have to speak to different things compared to mission in the northern beaches or the inner west or the Sutherland Shire and so on. So I mean, you know, all of Sydney is still more or less post postmodern, more or less Western in its kind of values. But but there really are. Um, Textual differences, te- texture differences yeah. um, b- between the different areas. And when, when you're in Sydney, right, likewise, you don't say you're from Sydney. Mm. So you're from the inner west or from the north shore or from the eastern suburbs or wherever it is. And do those kinds of uh, cultural, socioeconomic divisions play out in Sydney's churches as well? Are they, do, they, do they fall along some of the uh, same divisions? Yeah, sure. sure. The, the, I mean, the, I often... Um, uh, note Paul the Apostle describes the church in places, the church in Corinth, mm-hmm. uh, for example, uh, not the church of Corinth. And and a lot of the commentators will make a point of saying, of course, the church is meant to be in a place, but it's not meant to be of the place, except, of course, the church in Corinth was too much of Corinth, right? And I often feel, actually, that the church in Sydney is too much of Sydney as well. And so Sydney, which is this fairly fractured place, um, the church follows that, and it's quite a fractured church uh, denominationally. In in Sydney, the denominations have, um, uh, to a significant degree, not entirely, but to a significant degree, remained gospel-centered and Bible-based. And so all the established sort of uh, ministry that's been there since the First Fleet actually uh, continues. There have been some newer denominations as well. 
uh, as far as I can tell, although this is just just changing right now, the denominations hardly talk to each other. Um, and because Sydney's just a, a you know it's just an hour and a half commute from one end to the centre sometimes, and then another hour and a half out the other side, mm-hmm. it's just too big to to really do much um, genuine connectivity as churches. And so that's that led to this concept that we're really trying to promote in City City Australia, which is the connectivity needs not to be denominationally across the whole city. It needs to be within each subsidy. And so that if you take those subsidies, and there are, I think, probably around 20 of them, say, in, in Sydney, um, who is it that will take up the responsibility for reaching the 250 to 350,000 people in those subsidies? It's not going to be the denominations. They're just looking after the church as their denomination. Uh, it can't be the parachurch agencies because they have their own particular slice and they do one you know, particular yeah. focus uh, thing. It's got to be the Christian leaders, pastors and others, not only pastors, but, but others as well, in that subsidy saying, I love, we love the inner west. We love the inner southwest. We love the western suburbs, whatever it might be. And to say, and it, it we are going to take responsibility for seeing churches planted and revitalized to reach this subsidy because we know how to talk their language. We know how to speak to their fears and hopes and desires. And if we don't do it, no one else is going to do it. When you're talking about fears and hopes and aspirations and sort of speaking a, a heart language, we're kind of moving past the language of demographics or ethnographics into what you've called a spiritual profile. So can you tell us what you have in mind when you use the term spiritual yeah. profile? What does that, what does that mean for yeah, you? So, so demographics at the, at the top level, important to know that they're, they're the sort of fairly objective, um, observable uh, facts about an area, the, the um, number of people in a household, the number of households that are rented versus owned. Um, uh, average income levels of the household. You get this is the sort of stuff you get in a census. Mm-hmm. Ethnographics is a slightly deeper level of analysis, which is what are the the patterns of behaviour, um, uh, spending patterns, uh, leisure patterns, uh, the kinds of investments that people make uh, in relation to their kids. Um, that 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 are just getting a little bit deeper towards values, but again, are not not they're, they're one step short of values because they're the the behaviours that Reflect those values. Got it. Yeah. Spiritual profile is really trying to get to that bottom level of saying, well, all right, let's let's go as far as to try and summarize on the basis of research, not just guesswork, mm-hmm. uh, but to summarize what are the actual values, and in particular, from a um, missiological point of view, and this is why this I think is a useful sort of concept because it's it really is missiologically driven. It's not it's not just cultural analysis. Um, or even just city analysis. It's an attempt to do mission uh, as as is needed in in the the the, the day. Um, uh, what are in particular the the um, the loves? If 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 we are what we love, as um, uh, has been famously said, uh, then uh, we need to know what the loves of people are. And Augustine said that our loves play out in our desires for the future and our fears about the future, in our um, joys in the present and in our sadnesses in the present, right? These two things, the the future, good or bad, the present, good or bad. So desire, um, fear, 
joy, sadness. Mm. And so to try and understand what are those things for the people of a particular area, what are their desires, what are their hopes and dreams and aspirations for themselves and their their children, um, their families, what are their fears, uh, what are the things that they regard as their, their, their greatest nightmare, what are their, their joys? And so so a, a spiritual profile is really trying to get a sense of the loves of the heart of the people of an area in a way that then will enable you to articulate the gospel, the eternal, unchanging gospel grounded in the word of God with all the resources that the scriptures give us for um, speaking that gospel in a way that will connect in particular to those loves. Can you give us an overview of the spiritual profile for, say, your inner West context? So the inner West is a fantastically interesting place. I, um, and I think to be a, a good m- missionary in your area, you need to both love but not love too much. Right. Uh, you need to love it in the sense of understand it and get it and get why it's good, but at the same time not be seduced by it. So the inner West in Sydney is um, this lovely little pocket uh it's slightly out of the central business district. It's um, upper middle class uh, in socioeconomics. Um, it's very progressive. Uh, uh, it's highly uh, values education and um, it's very expensive. And so what this means is that there's a sort of a series of um, elements that feed into the fact that uh, people in the inner West are often are working uh, full-time jobs, professional jobs, both members of a couple, gay or straight, um, married or de facto, um, both will have to work in order to pay the mortgage for that house that they're um, trying to buy. Uh, so they're time poor, they're stressed, they're anxious that they're um, sold out to the system because they're making a lot of money. And so they've got to do other things to keep their um, conscience uh, kind of functioning and so they're highly pro- progressive in um, ecological terms, and so very environmentally aware. Uh, they will uh, often look to volunteer uh, for agencies, or at least they'll talk a good game about volunteering, but they won't have time because they're too time poor. Um, uh, they're often studying as well, so they're doing master's degrees or part-time PhDs, and so they're combining full-time work with both elements of a couple, doing extra study, often trying to raise kids, uh, Really interesting, they're highly progressive in their opinions, although not with relation to their kids. And so there's a real resurgence in sending kids to um, independent schools, uh, which are much less progressive than the government schools in the area. The government schools are highly progressive on the sexuality and transgender issues, uh, but the, the thousands of kids are literally pouring out of these government schools and into independent schools. And so um, they're, they're very ch- uh, family-focused in a fairly nuclear kind of way. They talk a great game about community, but they're too time poor to do much about it. Yeah. Um, and there's an enormous, enormous self-righteousness about all of this. Um, uh, they look down on um, almost everyone else who, uh, because who are either not progressive enough um, uh, or um, aren't making their... their, their contribution to the world in an adequate kind of way. Yeah. And so, you know, there's there's um, there's there's no rest, there's anxiety, uh, there's a, a, a enormous um, self-righteousness at the same time as uncertainty and fear. 
And all of these are gospel issues, mm. right? And so, so the, the point there is that once you've got a, a bit of a sense of um, uh, who, what is the profile of an inner West person, spiritual profile, that they give you some both content as well as method mm. or mode uh, clues for how to do mission in an area like that. Is there another area of the city that you could kind of offer a similar profile of to say that's how the inner west differs from this other kind of missiological unit? Yeah, sure. So I, I've, I've only lived in two areas in Sydney, then what's called the North Shore okay. uh, and the inner west. So the North Shore is also fairly upper middle class. My parents were um, uh, migrants uh, to Australia. Um, my dad, an asylum seeker, actually a refugee, uh, in 1956 from um, uh, Budapest in Hungary. They set up on the North Shore because that's where upper middle class people went. Though they, they weren't, they were aspirational about that. They, they weren't see, that yeah. themselves. And so the North Shore is not very progressive. It's much more conservative. It's older money. It's um, extremely um, sort of settled and um, uh, uh, much more... Um, Geographically separated, so the houses all uh, are, are much larger backyards. You can you can be entirely self-contained in your house. Um, uh, you might eat out occasionally, but um, uh, mostly you'd order in. At least when I, this is when I was growing up. Um, uh, there are only three uh, pubs like that. Uh, this is true uh, fairly recently. It might be more now, but there are only three pubs that were licensed. In an area of what, four hundred thousand people, or something like that, it was quite, quite remarkable just how conservative you know it was. It was, it was a real sense of no, we don't want to kind of allow that culture to invade our area. Right. And so, um, uh, e- equally self-righteous, but in a slightly different kind of way. In in, in the um, where it's not that we're the good people because we um, are upright and stable. Whereas the inner west is, we're the good people because we're uh, accepting and progressive, and so to again to sort of proclaim Christ in 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 a way that says doesn't take that into account would just would just be in the end be a mistake. Yeah, give us an example of that. What would it look like to um, maybe contextualize the gospel for those those different? So spiritual yeah. profiles. Well, and so there's some there's some things to not do. One of the one of the challenges is to simply enter the culture wars with the gospel right. and just to go beating people on the head. Right, that just yeah. doesn't help at all. Um, and one of the keys, I think that, and I think that Tim Keller has just done a, a stellar job, um, both modelling and also teaching that to contextualise the gospel requires you first to enter into the culture mm. and to affirm what there is to be affirmed there. Yeah. In relation to the uh, in the West where we live, I live at the moment and, and try and serve. Um, there's a couple of things to say. One is uh, y- y- you have to have a very kind of open and curious posture with in relation to people um, that models the same kind of openness and acceptance at a, at a, of whatever uh, uh, to start with. The, the, the initial engagement needs to be um, positive, open, curious, um Inquisitive, interested. Mm-hmm. Um, so we uh, run an event each quarter called Wine, Cheese, and a Conversation about something X and God. Yeah. Um, we've we've had all sorts of topics: Wine, Cheese, and a Conversation about mental health and God, or mm-hmm. 
extremism and God and um, suicide and cancer, whatever it might be. The, the wine and cheese is because we're partly saying we're, n- we're not afraid, we're not prudish, mm-hmm. we're, we, we can be a little bit progressive. I mean, it doesn't count for much, but it's just, it's just an, a posture of saying sure. we're not. But, but even more importantly than that, it's um, um, we want to enact the value that you have but find it so very difficult to actually live out, which is conversations with people who have different opinions you value, although you often end up in arguments instead of conversations. And so we, we're going to model having a conversation about that. So that's a, that's a posture question or a mode right. rather than a content issue. I think on, on terms of contextualizing the gospel in, ter- in relation to content, the, the, there are a couple of issues there. One is the, the question of rest, as I mentioned before, is because of the nature of the way that life in the NOS works, house prices are so high, double incomes, further study and kids and school fees and, you know, the whole the whole package yeah. and fear of that fear of missing out, the anxiety about am I, am I providing and so on. The issue of rest actually becomes a really significant gospel kind of point of connection with the inner West. Mm-hmm. Um, rest as a as a something that you can find for your soul, as Jesus promised it. Yeah. Um, in other areas of Sydney, because they're all about rest, that you'd need to speak about rest as an idol. But in but in the inner west, it's rest as a possibility because no one's no one's very restful at all. Yeah. So that's the first thing. The second thing I'd say is that because of the the nature of the self righteousness, the question of sin has to be handled in a delicate way, or in a, in, a, in a theologically kind of sophisticated way. And I think that Tim Keller has really done a, a brilliant job of showing how to talk about idolatry as sin, as in it as as one possibility alongside rebellion as sin mm. for these these very very confident self-confident in a west you know progressive for pro justice pro um in the environment pro indigenous issues i mean they're very very self-righteous about all this stuff to talk to them about being um you know disobedient sinners they just it's just it's like it's 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 an, it's incomprehensible to them mm-hmm. but if you talk to them about having made made something other than God the centre uh, and defining meaning-giving reality of their lives and it's not working for them mm-hmm. and it's, it's kind of consuming them and it's it's sort of eating eating them up mm-hmm. and th- that is a form of judgment, yeah. that speaks. Mm-hmm. And so, so finding ways to talk about the cross of Christ in relation to idolatry as a, a freeing of us from the, the treadmill, the terrible, endless, unceasing treadmill of creation of one's own identity um, in serving, you know, whatever cluster of idols that there are there, um, that, that all becomes really significant in how to speak about the gospel and what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus uh, in a way that will touch people. That's really helpful. I, I'm, and it prompts me to to wonder how a person would get started in the in a community that they're either currently serving or aspiring to serve how do you recommend that they get started developing something like a spiritual profile for whatever the appropriate geographic or yeah. you know whatever region is for them well i we we did this um some years ago we we worked up a focus group script actually so um we just did a bit of research on what i've spiritual profile might be and, and thought about that for a little while and put together some questions. We passed them by a, 
a, a fairly established and well-reputed uh, social researcher, you know, did this, do these questions have too much bias in them or were they actually... And then actually go out and ask people. That is, because uh, one of the dangers about a spiritual profile is that you you end up guessing rather than asking. And the problem with guessing is you end up projecting. Right. Uh, and, and, and then you're just talking to a mirror um, and it kind of, you're pretty surprised. You're not surprised at all, actually, what you find out there. It's kind of pretty obvious. Um, so I, really the only way to, I think the best way to do it is to just ask questions. Uh, find some people, even if you need to. We, we did uh, often an invite to come and say, we, we're genuinely not going to preach at you. We really want to hear what you say. You preach at us. Yeah. Uh, and we ran a number of these focus groups um, uh, and got some great results mm. uh, from that. In the end, they kind of confirmed what our guesses would have been, mm-hmm. but it was really important not to guess. But the research is crucial, not, not just guessing, not just projecting, yeah. but doing some research. And always trying to get at that that uh, basic underlying issue of what are the loves? What is it that people are loving, mm. desiring, fearing, rejoicing in, weeping over? Mm. Um, that will tell you where the heart is, yeah. and that will show you how to preach Christ to them. How do you imagine or envision the optimal relationship between the people who are working in the inner west and people who are working somewhere else? It, what's the kind of to what degree is there a value in the kind of citywide coalition or or cooperation if the sort of missiological unit is smaller than that? Well, that I think is a really interesting question because um, you just can't – there's just a limit of the number of meetings that you can go to. You know what I mean? You can go to your, your own church's meetings and then the local area meeting and then the citywide and the national and the global and you just end up doing meetings the entire time. Um, and that, that is a genuine problem. We really are trying to promote the subsidy as the unit of movement and and mission uh, in Australia. We we think there are about two hundred subsidies across Australia. So we don't we don't we don't we don't pray for a movement of the gospel in Australia, or for a movement of the gospel in Sydney. We pray for movements plural yeah. of the gospel, and each of those movements will need a coalition of leaders, as I say, pastors and others, and. Um, each coalition will need someone actually who's got some dedicated paid time to actually hold it together because that's the only way things hold together. We want 200 movements of the gospel in Australia. The reason that there's value for different subsidies to have connection with each other is that they will learn from each other how to do better contextualization by hearing from the other what they're doing. Because it's it's often it's really great to... Uh, see how someone else is contextualized, not because that's what you've got to do, but because that shows you what you, the kind of thing you ought to do and aren't doing right now. Right. And so I remember seeing the, uh, you know, one of the great Redeemer uh, City City resources from um, years and years ago was a spiritual profile of a Manhattanite. Mm -hmm. And then not just spiritual profile, but spiritual profile with ministry implications. So the profile was, you know, three quarters of a page long, just, you know, 15 dot points or something. Mm -hmm. The ministry implications was three pages. Mm -hmm. And it was a brilliant piece of work. And what was really clear was, A, that's what we needed, and B, it wasn't going to be that because there is nowhere else that's like Manhattan. And so the spiritual profile of a Sydney side or the spiritual profile of an inner Westie with ministry implications was just going to be different from what it was uh, as a Manhattanite. And... um, so learning, seeing what others do uh, will actually show you uh, a, an example of what either to do or not to do, but it will help you realize what you need to do as well. Yeah. And so I think there is a real place for it. But 
I'm, you know, the Sydney's a is a decent sized city, and 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 so nothing on some of the enormous, you know, Indian or Chinese cities. And I'm just I, I, I don't know enough about India and China by any stretch of the imagination, but I can't imagine that they don't function also as, you know, vast collections of subsidies, each with their own missiological edge. And the problem with the problem with the idea of city as a whole is is if if we get if we get two hundred people together to talk about reaching Sydney, we'll feel really great about that. Mm-hmm. Except that's two hundred people trying to talk about twenty different movements that are needed. So actually, it's tiny. Yeah, right. Um, what we need is twenty groups of two hundred people getting together. And the problem with doing it as a whole city is you think, wow, 200 people in the room. That was pretty good. Yeah. It's too small. Yeah. Um, and so we've got to take it down, uh, more and more down, and be okay with the fact that uh, it's really in our local area that we need to have focus. Yeah. Well, and it does seem that you're saying that instead of the single target of Sydney, you may have 20 targets of these subsidies and then each of those targets is a is a bit of a moving target <laughs> they're shifting over over the generations or something over a period of time and you just then there's another angle on this which is this is why um when it works when it's right long incumbencies uh within an area actually can be a good thing uh so that to have ministers that stay not five to seven years in one place and then move cities or move to completely the other side of the city or something like that but people who are in their sort of area, even if they move within the area, but are within their subsidy for a long period of time, really soak it up, yeah. both love it, but love it not too much, that sort of tension, uh, and really get it and have a long uh, tenure within the same kind of place, yeah. I think can be a real value because they can they can you know morph with those changes, really understand what's going on, provide some leadership for others who come in, yeah. uh, and so on. Yeah. If you imagine... Uh, Sydney, Christian leaders in Sydney sort of catching this vision and saying we're going to invest, you know, um, in deep connection with our various subsidies. What do you, what, what future do you imagine for Sydney if that happens? Well, what's really interesting is that there are, there's quite a lot of this happening already in Australia, actually. And, and I'm only new to this, really. There's, there's many others who have been very hard at work at this and have done enormously, uh, great work um, in taking what has always been a kind of a concept, right? The, I don't know if you're familiar with this phrase, the minister's fraternal, you know, that idea? So so minister's fraternal is ministers get together for a cup of tea each month oh, sure. and and meet and, and pray. And it, it one, it's, it's sort of the kernel of what this might be. Yeah. Um, but instead of take, instead of the, the problem with that is it quickly becomes inward looking and relatively and not goal directed at all. Right. Instead, if, um, you, if you add to a, a coalition which has genuine unity based on the recognition that because different kinds of churches are needed to reach different kinds of people, therefore we not just tolerate each other but celebrate each other, yeah. if you add unity and put with unity a goal, and so here's, here's a goal that we're kind of working on, which is to say we think that movement is, a, is marked by one church, one healthy growing church per thousand residents. Mm. So if you take unity, which is hard enough, and you add to it a goal like that, 
then then that, that'll suddenly that will change. That's it's all snaps into action at that point. And this in the inner west of Sydney, there are two hundred sixty thousand people. There are one hundred thirty churches, and they're not all healthy. And so suddenly, you you've just got here's what we're doing together. We're building with each other. We're praying with each other. We're supporting each other. And we, we, we need each of us to plan another church and we need to help those that aren't so healthy to get healthy. Yeah. And we need to start making an impact in the inner West because there are real social needs in the inner West, which we as a whole, as the church of Christ yeah. can achieve that none of us will be able to do individually. Right. And that adorns the gospel in a way that becomes, you know, kind of unmissable. Mm. And so when you've got church multiplication with planting and, and regeneration and revitalization, um, along with um, justice and mercy efforts uh, the church does collectively together, then that, I think, has just got a possibility about of a kind of a rolling momentum to see movement emerge, yeah. a movement of the gospel. That's great. Thank you, Andrew, for your time. It's been a real pleasure to chat with you. Great pleasure. You can find more information about City to City Australia online at citytocityaustralia.org.au. Next week, we have Bishop Raymond Rivera, a longtime pastor in New York City's South Bronx neighborhood and author of Liberty to the Captives. Bishop Rivera offers us a framework for ministry in the context of captivity. Spoiler alert, all of us are captives. How to Reach the West Again is a production of Redeemer City to City. This episode was produced, written, and hosted by Brandon O'Brien. Our associate producer is Braden Gregg. Tim Keller's presentation on city theology was recorded by Andrew Walker. The interview was recorded on location in London by Moises Zetina and Luke Gates of Westway Records and edited by Lee Jerkins. Redeemer City to City is a nonprofit organization co-founded by Tim Keller and supported by generous people like you. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform, leave a review, and consider making a gift to support the work at www.redeemercitytocity.com slash give.